I want to talk to you guys a little bit about Burundi and then about our team and then about what God is doing. The place of Burundi, it's a little tiny green speck right there next to Lake Victoria is the big white spot to the east and Lake Tanganyika is that strip of white to the west of that green dot. That's Lake Tanganyika, the second largest freshwater body in the world. We're very proud of that. But um, Burundi is in the heart of Africa. It's where Francophone Africa and Anglophone Africa meet, so French-speaking and English-speaking Africa meet. It's where the developing East Africa meets the undeveloped Central Africa. It's where the Sahara and radical Islam are pushing down into the rest of Sub-Saharan Africa. We are like at this crossroads, this uh, pivotal place in Africa. It is a former German colony prior to World War I, after which point in time the reparations repayments gave it to the Belgians along with Rwanda and parts of Congo. And their independence was celebrated in 1962. So that's kind of around the same time as those neighboring countries declared their independence from Belgium. French and Kirundi are the national languages and the gross national income, which is another way of saying like the GDP, the gross domestic product. It's a little bit better for subsistence farming communities where there's not a large product is $280 per capita per year. So that means that the average person in Burundi is living on about 75 cents a day, which puts it below the $1 per day, which is the definition of low income countries, which is our new preferred terminology for instead of developed world, undeveloped or developing world, we say low income, mid income, high income countries. And according to the Global Hunger Index released in 2013, Burundi is number one. So yay, we're number one, the hungriest nation on earth. Um, even if every arable acre of land in Burundi was under continuous cultivation, they could never feed their people. So this is a chronic destabilizer. They're going to be consistently, persistently dependent on foreign food aid. But as you can see from this picture, that doesn't mean that they're not happy and active. This is a Burundian drummer doing the thing that only Burundi does. They have these drums. This is how they used to speak mountain to mountain or hill to hill. They would play the drums and certain rhythms would say certain messages. So you know, the rains are good, like we had some flooding, can you come help us, is a rhythm on the drum. And when they have their parties, they do this stuff where they jump in the air, flip around, they're very acrobatic. You see this drum that he's, the gentleman standing is just leaving his sticks on the drum. They'll put that drum on their head and play the drum as they dance around. This is the quintessentially Burundian thing, no other country that we know of on earth does this. And those drums are heavy, they're like 70 pounds sometimes. So this, but they're very, they're proud. This is their heritage. Even if they can't eat, they can play the drum. <laughs> More recently than 62, Burundi experienced their second round of genocidal civil war from 92 to 2004. And that spilled into neighboring Rwanda. So probably if you've seen the Don Cheadle movie, Hotel Rwanda, or you paid attention to the news at all during the Clinton administration, you heard about something that was going on in Rwanda. Rwanda is just a little bit better organized than Burundi. They did their genocide in several months, uh, whereas Burundi took 12 years to sort of sort out these issues of tribe. That's the past, right? This is, I'm going to talk about the people and tell you why this happened. Um, there's three main tribes in Burundi. There is the Hutu majority, so that's about 85% of the population. The Tutsu minority, which is 15% of the population. And then this is a picture of, of Twa women. They're the third tribe. They're less than 1% of the population. They're actually a pygmy people, and they make these pots. This is, they live out, kind of outside the rest of society. I don't know that they are technically an unreached people group because the Bible is in their language, because all three tribes in Burundi speak Kirundi, the same language. But... 
there's almost no one working with him. I think they're kind of like the way the Roma gypsies are in Europe, where they, they're like not trusted, they're not really a part of the rest of society. But we are there working mainly with Hutu and Tutsis, because that's most of the people in Burundi. And the Belgians favored the Tutsis during their colonial rule because they could support them militarily to stay in power, and the Tutsis wishing to stay in power would cooperate with the Belgians, but they were always dependent on that military aid so they could be controlled. So when independence came, now there's this animosity between these two tribes, but without the intervention of an outside power to mitigate. So that's why they've been at each other's throats for generations. And part of what we're gonna, I'm gonna get to what we're doing in Burundi and how we're hoping that the gospel comes in and changes that. But for a little more context, 10.4 million people in Burundi, so that's roughly the same as the population of Los Angeles County, in an area the size of Maryland, so just about two and a half times the size of LA County, with no major big cities. The biggest city is the capital, that's one million people. The next largest is Gitega, that's closer to where we are, with 100,000. So you can get a sense, if you're, do, if you're mathematically inclined at all, that you don't concentrate people into big cities, but you have a huge, dense population. They're just people everywhere. And they're all subsistence farmers, so everyone's farming their like 10 acres trying to make ends meet. And you can't drive a kilometer on the roads without crossing paths with at least 10 people. So it's just people everywhere all the time, which is awesome, except when it's not. Um, <laughs> we have a few needs for certain types of people. There are only 300 physicians in the country of Burundi. So I, try to, I, I did my residency training at LA County USC in the ER, also called the Knife and Gun Club. Um, it would be like the entire population of LA County being cared for by just the interns, the, the first year graduates from medical school of my hospital. So 10 surgeons, and this, that's where they're at. They don't, they don't have specialty training for the most part. So they're like interns. They're like at the, they've just graduated medical school and now they're practicing. So that's part of what we're headed into and what we're hoping to change. And this is my team. The top picture is when we arrived at Kibuye and the bottom picture was taken just before I left. So there's, not a, there's all the same people for the most part, except for one volunteer teacher who's in the top picture and not in the bottom. But you can see we are six doctors, two teachers, and eight kids ages eight and down. And then we have a few people who are there helping for a year. There's an anesthesiologist and his family and a teacher, a primary school teacher. We found each other when we were in Ann Arbor at various stages of our medical training. I'm three years behind everyone else. So I was in medical school while our surgeon was in residency. That's the biggest range. And we all went to the same church in Ann Arbor, which was a, a huge blessing. And they are responsible for sending the three families. So we had this same theology. We were, we were operating under the same sort of doctrinal premises. And then when we discovered that everyone else had this view of missions that was, we want to take care of patients, but we want to teach medical students. We want, to, we want to train up medical missionaries from Africa for Africa. That's when we started bonding as a team. And we would talk, I don't know if any of you guys have lived outside of Southern California, but in other parts of the world it gets cold occasionally. And there's this thing called snow that falls on the ground. And it makes it hard to move around outside. So in the winter evenings, we would sit at one of our homes and we would drink like coffee or tea or cocoa and we would play like card games or board games or just talk about life and dream about what if God wanted to send us all together? What if we could, we love each other, We're, we have great rapport, we've worked together in the hospital and in the medical school. What if we could all go together? 
And that would be crazy because there's, we're, we're going to be so many doctors. Like what hospital could, could accept that many Western doctors at once? And so at some point in time, we said, well, we should either stop talking about this or we should start looking into this to making this a reality. And so we did. And like I said, I'm three years behind everyone else. So everyone else went to Kenya for two years to work at Tenwek Hospital, which if, if you guys follow medical missions, it's a really old, long-term established hospital. Um, Franklin Graham has given money. They have a, their own hydroelectric dam and CT scanner. They're kind of, they're like up here and Kibuye is like down here. But anyways, they worked there under some, some experienced missionary physicians and kind of cut their teeth in that regard. And then we were looking around for where is it that God could use, could place six physicians and the families that go along with them. And we found several places. We actually investigated multiple, including the Elwa Hospital. If you guys know Dr. Kent Brantley, who was brought to the U.S. with Ebola, that's the hospital that he was working at. Um, that was one of the places we considered, but ultimately decided that there wasn't the right educational context to be there. So we decided on this place in Burundi, which was a mission hospital started in 1938 that had no physician, no full-time physician staff, but it was 110 beds. That doesn't mean mattress. That just means a place for a patient. And two operating rooms, which doesn't mean like suction or anesthesia. It just means a room with a light and a table. Um, so we could, you know, there's this hospital that needs a staff. And then there's this medical school that started in 2006 at the request of the president of Burundi to a Christian minister who had started a university. The president said, we have this problem with our national medical school. We enroll 300. We graduate about 30. Of those 30, maybe three will stay in country after they graduate because they can earn so much more money in Europe or even South Africa that they can send back to their families out of their disposable income more than they would imagine earning in Burundi. And so the, the rector of this university, a Burundian man who actually helped with those Arusha peace accords, he said, well, we don't have the funds, facilities, faculty, curriculum, students, hospitals, patients. But yeah, by God's grace, we'll do this thing. And, and nine months later, he started enrolling students in a medical school, which had no faculty. And so we looked at this situation and said, I think that this is the, the hole that our puzzle piece fits perfectly into as six physicians of different specialties who want to teach and raise up medical missionaries from Africa for Africa. So that's how we got to Burundi. I figured in a room full of moms and ladies, you'd like to know about those eight kids, ages eight and down, and what's happening with them. Five of them are in school being taught by their teacher moms, and now we have a primary school teacher who's coming to help with that. So they are Anna, who's eight, Elise, seven. Abby, Maggie, and Micah are all five. And so they, when we were in France for language school, attended French school which is a little bit of a challenge, I think, if you don't speak French already. And their education system is very different than our own. Like, you don't ever get praised. You only get criticized, um, which is a little rough for an American kid who's, like, optimistic and, you know, <laughs> wants to try anything. But they, did, they actually survived pretty well. You can see, you can see the five-year-olds in the, in the upper picture smiling. And this is their schoolroom in Burundi. We converted an old missionary house and put their little, we had their little desks made by a carpenter on site. And yeah, like I said, so two of the moms are teachers. They're actually trained at secondary level and they have their masters in ESL. So they're being stretched a little bit, teaching these primary students a little bit more exhausting in some ways than junior hires, but probably not in other ways. So, and then the other three are, they're waiting to start school. They're hanging out at home for right now. 
that's Ben, Sammy, and Toby. So I figured you guys would like to see them. This is the out, the lower picture is the outside of their schoolroom. You can see that sort of tile roof brick building. It's where um, a former missionary used to live who was a physician. He's an army physician, actually. So then what are we doing in Burundi? What does our ministry look like? I liken it to an onion. Those of you who've already heard any presentation of mine have heard the onion joke, which is that ministry is like an onion. The more you get into it, the more you cry. <laughs> it's not actually, that's, it's the, that there's layers to the ministry. Um, the outermost layer is the economic development for our village and our community. I'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, then the next layer inside is direct patient care, ministering to people in their moments of physical need um, and using that as a vehicle for the gospel. And then within that, those further inside is the training of medical students, both their spiritual formation and their just academic formation to become those medical missionaries from Africa for Africa. And then the goal of all this, the core, the thing that grows out of the onion is spiritual transformation. And that's in ourselves and our students and the staff of our hospital and our, the local church and the villages in our countries, our supporters, and the whole world. This is the goal, right? We want the world to be transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. We put that into two categories. We say we have our word ministry and our deed ministry, and we try to keep those two going in sort of maintain that tension at all times. Kind of what Jesus did. He came healing the sick and preaching the gospel of repentance or preaching the, king, the coming of the kingdom of God. Um, so we're trying to do that. His healing ministry, I think, took a little bit less time than ours does. <laughs> Just because he was like, all he had to do was like spit on the ground and make mud and stick it in somebody's eyes. And we don't have that kind of mud in Burundi. <laughs> We have other kinds of mud. So from the deed side, sort of like the economic development, we have, by God's grace, been able to employ over 100 people continuously since we got there in building projects to build homes for missionaries and dorms for medical students and hospital buildings and renovate and make like an emergency room and a neonatal ICU. It was just cardboard boxes for the premature babies before. And so now we have like little warmers, which is a huge step up when we have electricity. We've been able to connect our community to clean drinking water for the first time ever. Um, so they have a near unlimited supply of clean drinking water when there's electricity, which is, for some of you who know, like from a public health perspective, that is going to prevent more disease than we will ever treat at our hospital. So that's like a huge impact even beyond just the, the medical care we're giving at the hospital. Um, we have, with the government, distributed over 155,000 mosquito nets within our community. So we're hoping to prevent malaria as well. And then we hired an agricultural engineer for the hospital, which is kind of a weird thing for a hospital to do, but we want him to do test gardens and beds and teach new uh, agricultural techniques. Quite literally, agriculture has not changed in Burundi since the Bronze Age. They hose, they use hose to cultivate the ground. There, there are cows, but they don't pull plows and they don't do any threshing work. I think it's because their plots are too small, but, and maybe their cows are too weak to bull plow. I'm not exactly sure. I studied medicine, not farming. But, um, but anyhow, so there are, there are improved techniques that can even do better in rotating your crops and knowing about other things that can grow in your area. So this is hopefully gonna be a, a long-term transformative investment of time and money from the hospital's perspective that our patients will be able to eat better because about 60% of the patients I see in the emergency room are malaria, and 60% are malnutrition. So obviously there's some overlap between those. Um, and if we can start taking care of these things and preventing disease, there's a proverb in French, 
it vaut mieux prévenir que guérir. It, it's worth more to prevent than to treat or to cure. So even though I'm an emergency medicine doctor ready to respond to those acute crises, I'm probably doing more to prevent things now than I would in the States. Um, and then we've done 260 surgeries in the first two quarters of 2014, which is about 260 more than they did in the first two quarters of 2013. And like I said, we renovated space for emergencies for premature babies and have a program. We're expanding the program to feed malnourished kids from our hospital. So that's kind of the deed side. The word ministry is actually the most fun thing that we do from my perspective. We have the teaching component, which is just, you know, we have like 60 hours of lecture for these students, hundreds of hours of bedside clinical teaching, because that's our goal. Our point is that they learn how to be doctors. They came to us very, very green. They had their stethoscope because they knew that they were supposed to buy this before, you know, getting to the hospital. And when they came into the ER, they had their stethoscope. And I'm like, okay, can you take the blood pressure of this patient? This is relatively basic for us. And they look at the stethoscope. <laughs> they put the bell of the stethoscope on their chest. And I'm like, that's good. That's what you're going to do for the patient. But this other part is the one that goes, no, not like that. The other way around. Yeah, there you go, in your ears. So literally, they didn't know which was the business end of a stethoscope. But that was also nice because they had no bad habits before they got to us. So we trained them up and totally spoiled them because when they, they complained about our teaching method, which is like, you're going to learn it by doing it. And we're there to do it with you. Uh, whereas the other method is you're going to learn by watching somebody else do it. So this is practical time for them, and they, they hated it. They're just like, you're so hard on us. You know, you drive us. Do you want, we don't know how to do this stuff. What's the matter with you? And like, you'll get good at it. Don't worry. Everyone does the same thing. Then they leave Kibuye, which is a rural hospital, and they go to the capital city where they're back in a Burundian Belgian system where they're like standing with their arms crossed watching the attending physician talk to the patient and just wondering, when they can leave and go do something else. And then they're texting me and emailing me like, Dr. Wendler, we're so bored. Can we come back to Kibuye? <laughs> so like students anywhere, right? You, you're just a catch-22. The best, most wonderful thing that I get to do is the FOF Bible study with these students. And it's not just students. There are staff and there are local pastors who come to the Bible study as well. And this is in French, so that's a little bit of a challenge for me. Who, it's, French is not my first or second language. Um, but we have great conversations about very basic spiritual things. And in the same way that, like I talked to you about the stethoscope, they don't really know the practicalities. They don't have that training in how to actually do their medicine. It's the same way with doctrine. These are kids, because it's a Christian medical school, they've decided to go there. They, a lot of times, have a background. I, you might have seen on that slide, it's 65% Catholic, 25% Protestant, 3% Muslim in Burundi. So a lot of these kids come from church backgrounds but they've never been taught anything substantive or substantial for the, the doctrines of the church or you know, how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible on your own. And so this is like, they're a blank slate in that regard too. So one example you have heard me tell before if you've been in any talk is we were talking about who is Jesus. And if, how many of you guys have done FOF in any form at any point in time? Oh yeah, it's like everybody. Okay, so at the beginning of every lesson, there's those true false questionnaires. One of the questions in lesson four, I believe, is, you know, true or false, Jesus was part God, part man. And it's kind of a trick question because it's like he's 100% of two things, but that's not like you would never arrive there logically to say that. Anyways, so my, my small group, they all mark true that he is part God, part man. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, this is not exactly true. Like, 
so they're like, what do you mean not true? And I'm like, well, we're going to talk about it some more. But like trying to flesh this out a little bit, I said, well, if he's part God, part man, like what percentage God is he? What percentage man is he? And they're like, ah, about 50-50. No, wait, hold on. He couldn't be 50-50 because he's better than us. And then I said, what do you mean better than us? Like what percent God are we? And they said straight face, they're like, maybe like 8, 10%. Like, what are you coming up with this? Like 8, 10%, is, I, that doesn't even make sense. Like, and we, we worked it out. And I was like, where does this coming from? And they're like, well, the Bible says when we get saved, we become children of God. And how can a kid not be part of their parent? I was like, okay, I see where you're coming from. That's good. Now I really don't know how to explain this in French because <laughs> Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, and you're 0% God. So we're going to start from there, and we're going to go through this lesson. But they're so eager to learn, and they're so excited to learn. Another one of the students, we did a kind of a wrap-up session where we took all of the topics that had been started during the conversations that happened along the curriculum but couldn't be finished because of time concerns. And I assigned it, each of those topics to students in the class and said, okay, you're going to go home, and you're going to research this, and you're going to come back and present what does the Bible say about unanswered prayer about the role of women in the church, about predestination election. Like, we're just going to look at what does the Bible say. And Ivan, one of the students, not this one pictured here, after the presentation of predestination and human responsibility, he puts his hand down on the table and he says, you know, I don't believe in predestination. He grew up in some Arminian background. I don't believe in predestination, but I believe that the Bible teaches predestination, so I'm going to change what I believe. And I wanted to like jump out of my chair and like shout up and down because that's the goal, right? It doesn't matter where you start from. If what, you're, if what you are submitted to is what the Bible teaches, I'm going to believe and I'm going to change the way I think and believe based on what the Bible says, then we're all going to arrive at the right place at the end. And that's what we're all trying to do, right? That's, our goal is to become biblical theologians, right? Become biblical livers. What have been the results of this? And I, wouldn't, I don't know that I can tie directly the FOF Bible study to these next two things, but I can tell you that there is fruit growing up in the Africans that we're working with. So the medical students on their own, un, like prompted by us, started a whole hospital evangelization campaign. So their goal is that every patient during their sojourn with us at the hospital will hear the gospel at least once. And, that, and they were doing it. They were going out from bed to bed after their shifts were done to talk to people about Jesus. And this, is, to me, is just an answer to prayer because I don't speak Kirundi very well yet. It's like way more complicated. We'll get to it later, but Kirundi is just way more complicated than I thought it was going to be. That's their tribal language. That's in the rural areas, the only thing that people speak. So they're able to communicate the message of, of the gospel to people in Kirundi in a way that they understand. And I love it because our students are so much more gentle and gracious then the, even our chaplain, this is funny, our chaplain like stands there and like yells at people about the gospel. And I guess it's just cultural, but it seems really, he's just yelling. I don't understand what he's saying because it's in Kiruni, but it's just, he's just yelling at people all the time. And I'm like, Pascal, like, let's use some analogies. Like, here's a garden, you know, we're pulling weeds from the garden. This is like your life, you know. If you don't plant new behaviors, then all you're going to ever do is pull weeds. And weeds are like sin. And God is the one who's our garden, like whatever, anyways. So he's not... It's an agricultural society. I feel like Jesus did this, right? Teaching in parables, but yelling. Anyways, so that's the whole hospital evangelization campaign that um, got started this, this spring. And then the other one is actually our, one of our pharmacists has started a fatherless children fund, which is, I put this in the word ministry because 
For orphans in Burundi, there are some resources, there are orphanages for orphans where they can go and, and live in a Christian context and have some input from older, wiser people and even hear the gospel. There's not a ton of unclaimed orphans in Burundi because their family is so intact, they take care of themselves. So of the families I know, 50% of families have 50% kids that are adopted functionally. So like even all this, you know, 12 years of disruption because of the civil war, lots and lots of orphans, but not a lot of orphans without a home, which is really cool. And I'm, I praise God for that. I don't, I can't exactly explain why that is except just the common grace of God on families in Burundi. But if you're missing a dad and have a mom, you're at a tremendous disadvantage in society still, but there's no resources for those people because they have a parent, they have a mom. Those moms are often, they're kind of ostracized because either they got pregnant out of wedlock or you know, no one knows why their husband died. You know, there's uh, some suspicion like, oh, was it HIV that he died? Like, let's you know, be careful of that woman. Like maybe she's infected or affected too. So these kids need a little bit of support and our pharmacist is a Christian man and is like, taking it on himself to create this fund to care for the fatherless of Burundi. And so his goal is to, to provide them educational resources so they can get out of that cycle, so they can get schooling and then they can get jobs and they can live a different way than sort of the standard route that they go. So these are things that our Burundian colleagues and students are initiating on their own, which is, you know, there's no greater joy than to see your children walking in the faith, right? And they're not really my children. I've been there for a year, but I feel somehow responsible and connected to them. So what are the prospects for what we're doing? We're building up the hospital. So we have actually, by the grace of God, we have $400,000 to build new buildings at the hospital, um, a medical pediatric ward building that's going to, it's like another 50% capacity for housing patients, which is going to be super nice because they'll have their own bed and like a little bit of private space, which right now they're just like smashed together in these sort of hallways. And then a new classroom sort of complex where we can have all of our students in at once, which is the spaces we're using right now are just small and cramped and they were built in the 70s or before. So they're kind of dilapidated a little bit. And then for me personally, I'm fundraising to build a house, a permanent residence on the Kibuya campus. Our plan is to be there for 15 to 20 years. So having a place to live is relatively important. Right now I live in sort of guest quarters. So looking forward to that when I get back. It's great to be like a longtime Grace member because Grace, as you know, is like has this huge resource of people. So there's like an architect here who's like, hey, do you, you want to build a house? Can I design the house for you? Do you have any special needs with the house? Like what, tell me about the stuff in Burundi. What do they build out of? And just met with him yesterday and he's got some cool plans like this passive air conditioning system. Sounds really cool. Also, didn't study architecture, I studied medicine, but God puts people around you that can meet all those needs. And then, like I said, the most exciting thing is to expand the FOF Bible study to include more local pastors. Through a generous donation of a Grace member, we have 20 MacArthur Study Bibles in French that are gonna be like the carrot for them to finish the FOF study. So that when the pastors are done with FOF, I will be able to give them a MacArthur Study Bible in a language, because the pastors have been educated enough to, to read French. So that's gonna like, this is like my surreptitious way of like transforming the doctrinal milieu of the churches of Burundi. So they're going to have notes on what they're studying, and that's going to be super helpful. And then, like I said, our team is growing. And this is a big prayer request, actually, is there's two families joining our team. They're not there yet, but they're going to join 
hopefully in the next six months. And obviously with every new family that comes, that's a transition and we need to, we want to welcome them and incorporate them. But it also means there's more, at least for a short period of time, there's a lot more work to do in helping the white people who are coming to Burundi. And our goal obviously is helping the Africans. So we're trying to balance that. And how does the vision change when new people join the team? And how does that you know, affect the workload for everybody? Because it, it might seem like adding more people to the team would mean like, oh, you're, you're dividing the labor between more people. It's totally the opposite. It just ends like there's more people engaging in more of God's work. And so you actually, rather than taking the same pie and cutting it into more pieces, you're actually always expanding the pie, which is awesome. Uh, it's the it's the Lord's work and it's wonderful in our eyes, but it also means that there's just more <laughs> there's just more going on all the time, and we're pretty busy already as you can imagine. So, pray for us that as the team grows, we would be able to shepherd them and and welcome them and incorporate them well into the team, as well as that we would be able to maintain the kind of trajectory and and ballast that we have thus far in getting to the goal of the spiritual transformation of our community and world. So that's that. I figured. My mom told me pictures are really important in these, in these meetings, so I threw in a few extras at the end that you can look at while we do question and answer. There's a few, I took way too much time, but there's still a few minutes left for Q&A if anybody has questions. Yes, ma'am. How many students do you have? There are 24 to 32 students per class, and we are responsible for three classes of medical students. We are also responsible for two nursing schools and every other health related school that that same rector, that same minister who started the university, decided to start. So there's like physical therapy and anesthesia tech and radiology tech and pharmacy tech. We're overwhelmed with those ones, but um, the basic, the core is the medical and nursing schools are our responsibility at Kibuye. So for those nursing schools, if everyone is at Kibuye at the same time, we can have more students than patients. Um, which is, we think, not ideal for learning until we make some of the patients or some of the students into patients. But <laughs> so, yeah, we can have over 100 students at once at the, at the site, at the hospital site. But usually it's between 60 and 70. Yes, Dolores. Yeah, so medicine is expensive. Um, living in the poorest country, one of the poorest countries on earth means that, though expensive, Everything is way cheaper in Burundi than it is here. The hospital is about 60 to 70% self-sustaining, meaning that the operational costs come from the patient fees that we charge. There's that, obviously, I mean, if you say something is 70% self-sustaining, that's another way of saying it's not self-sustaining. Um, the government program is supposed to cover the care of children under five and pregnant women, which is a, like a wonderful and honorable, noble thing for the government to try to do. They're about six to 12 months behind on payments and they pay about 30% of the actual cost. So if the government paid everything, we would be much closer to 90% self-sustaining. And then there are, we have sort of angel donors in the US that, that give money annually for the operational cost of the hospital. For our own support as missionaries, that comes through our mission called Surge or World Harvest Mission. And that, for me, is largely from members of this church. GMI supports me. And then there's actually one educational, like an, an ER educational company that is my biggest supporter. A couple non-Christians run this thing, and they just love what we're doing. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian missionary. And they're both married to believers, so I think that's part of the reason. But yeah, they're supporting in a big way. Yes, ma'am. I was thinking 
son tells me it's really hard to talk about theological things in another language. And, and, and also, um, what is your infrastructure like? You said you have electricity. Does that mean you have it part of the time? We have electricity most of most days. But there are days that we don't have electricity at all, and the electricity goes off almost every day for some part of the day. We have generators which run when we have gas. We have gas when there's gas in Gatega, and we can bring it to our generators, or when the generator doesn't break because someone left it on while the power came back on and burns out a circuit breaker or a fuse or something like that. So it's just, you know, this is just stuff that happens. Like, we have the sun every day, and we have rain nine months out of the year. So, but it really is, it truly is a society that operates without the assumption of electricity or running water. So we're on a, like I wake up with the sun and kind of stuff slows down at around 7.38 when the last light is, has left the sky. So I kind of lived the California dream in some ways. Like I got solar power at my house. I, you know, I don't use like electricity or gas to wash my clothes. I use a guy named Camaro in a bucket. Um, I walk to work, you know, all my food is organic, pesticide free, free range chickens, cage free eggs, you know, like, it's fantastic, you know. It's um, it's what every Californian wishes they could do, I think. Um, and all for the low, low price of like a hundred dollars a month. So, but yeah, infrastructure is part of what we're. That's part of it. We have um, a team of engineers and architects came and worked with us to develop a twenty-year development plan for the site. So, building up the the power grid and the sewage and the the water supply, as well as the buildings where we're going to teach and treat Africans. Those, that's all part of the plan, which is wonderful. Those bricks look nice. Do they make those bricks there? Those are made on site in forms and then stacked into sort of like kilns that they throw charcoal in and leave burning for about a week to fire them. So yeah, they, you know, local, local materials. That's for our homes. The temperature at Kibuya, we're at elevation, so we're four degrees south latitude, but our elevation at Kibuya is over 7,000 feet. So the, the capital city of Bujumbura, is the lowest point in Burundi, and that's over 5,200 feet. So the lowest point in Burundi is Denver. So everything else is above that. So like I said, it's the spine of Africa, the Nile and the Congo rivers both start in Burundi and flow down. So whereas it should be like 95 degrees and 99% humidity, it's you, our temperatures range from 55 to 80 almost year round. So suffering for Jesus <laughs> in San Diego weather. Yes, ma'am. So Ebola has not yet reached Burundi. It's about the nearest outbreak is that independent outbreak that happened in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And that's, about, that's still about 500 miles away from where we are. Oxford University released a, a predictive model for how Ebola is going to spread in Africa. And these, there's so many assumptions of these, it's hard to know what is true. But Burundi is one of the countries likely to be affected. Um, their prediction would be 30,000 fatalities. Um, so. We'll see what happens. This is not going away very quickly, and this is not really under control. So Burundi is a really densely populated nation, as I said before. 30,000 is a huge number, but compared to what it ought to be in a place like Burundi, that's relatively low, because people don't move as much in Burundi, and they don't have the same sort of burial rituals that you've been reading about in West Africa, like kissing the body of the dead person and whatnot. So it's a little bit different. We're, that's one of the discussions we're going to have when we go back, is what do we do if, when, Ebola lands in Burundi, or do we need to close the hospital and close all of our village health clinics that support us 
and tell people that we will come to them so that we can, because if you can immobilize, if everybody stopped moving for three weeks, we'd be done. But that's just really hard for a, a culture, like, well, any culture to do, to stop moving for three weeks. Espanol, yes. I grew up I grew up in Southern California, so Spanish was pretty critical. Yes, ma'am. Um, I probably should know this, but is Ebola a Ebola is its own separate virus and it causes basically a breakdown of the blood vessels. So you lose a lot of fluid and you can actually get into what's called a hemorrhagic fever, um, where you'll be bleeding. There's only been three documented cases of Ebola in the United States, and all three of them were missionaries from West Africa who were brought to the U.S. for treatment and got, got healed. So how does one actually, what are the symptoms and how does it progress? It starts like a flu. So that's why like travelers coming back and forth between Africa are screened for fever. They have thermal scans of travelers, and they ask you your symptoms. And if you've been traveling in that area, you'll get more screening. There are tests. There's blood-based tests that can say whether you're infected with Ebola or something else. As long as you don't like touch anybody else, um, but that's hard to do because you need care if you have Ebola because you need to you so need to get treatment through, through bodily fluid. Not like the movie Outbreak where it became aerosolized and then everybody got affected. So. So the majority of Burundians have a Catholic or Protestant background, whatever that means, um, because you know, they were willing to kill you if you were the wrong tribe. Their primary identity is tribe, and then their religious background is largely sort of like Bible-based, Christian-ish. No, that's the whole country. Our student, and our students are pretty representative of that. So one of our things to, that we're doing is that we're educating them side by side. So Hutus and Tutsis are in the same university, in the same classroom, in the same clinics, in the same hospital wards. And there's a, there's a phrase that we loved at LA County USC, which was, nothing stops a bullet like a job, um, which is a Father Greg Boyle, in, he's a Catholic priest in downtown. He works with gangsters, or gang, sorry, gangbangers. Gangsters is probably the 30s and 40s. Um, he works with gang members, and he puts them specifically in jobs next to each other and says, you guys have to figure out a way to work together. And once they've done that for six months, the likelihood of them going back into violence, because now they have a work friend, colleague, that they've had to lean on and depend on, goes way down. And so we're excited about putting them in an educational context together. And I can tell you some of my closest friends in life are people that I trained with, because you're through that, you go through that process together. So that's part of hopefully bringing healing, truth and reconciliation to Burundi is getting different tribes in contact with each other in a way that they're doing something, not fighting, but they're, they're helping people outside of themselves.